Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. The year was 1962. The place was a suburban neighborhood near Los Angeles, California. A small group of young boys with baseball gloves and hats were gathered around a wooden fence at the far end of an unkept makeshift baseball field. Only a day before, Scotty Smalls, the new kid on the block, had smashed his first out-of-the-park home run across the fence. But what should have been a moment of triumph for Smalls turned out to be one of the most horrifying things that he could have done. For the baseball that he walloped outside of the sandlot bore the signature of none other than the Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, the Colossus of Clout, the Colossus of Clout, the great Bambino, Babe Ruth himself. Why didn't the children just jump the fence and grab the ball, you ask? They wouldn't dare. For on the other side of that fence dwelt a hideous beast, a ravenous monster of a dog that had already been known to have consumed an entire child, and for that reason had been locked up securely behind the fence forever. (laughs) All hope seemed lost until Benny the Jet Rodriguez had a vision of the dead Babe Ruth in a dream telling him to jump the fence and get the ball back from the beast. Benny knew he was fast, but he would need all the help he could get to recover the autographed ball. So he brought out his secret weapon, shoes, (laughs) guaranteed to make a kid run faster and jump higher, PF Flyers. Donning the footwear of the greatest athletes of his day, Benny jumped the fence, faced off with the beast in the greatest game of pickle that the world has ever seen, grabbed the priceless baseball, and vaulted over the fence to the joyous cheers of his comrades. He had done it. He had stared doggy death in its faming fangs and lived to tell the tale, saving Smalls from certain demise at the hands of his stepfather, and evading the beast, or so he thought, until the beast crashed through the fence and began chasing Rodriguez all over the neighborhood. But that's a story for another day. Shoes are an often overlooked aspect of the armor of God passage in Ephesians chapter 6. Shoes are important in just about every area of life, and not just for cosmetic purposes, Although that may be what our culture values most today, ask any athlete, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, soccer, what you put on your feet can either hinder your performance or enhance it. Soldiers, military service members, law enforcement officers will say the same thing. I would not want to run any sort of substantial distance with these wonderful dress shoes that I am currently sporting, 
But if you give me some Nikes, watch me sprint to victory like the goddess herself. In Ephesians 6.15, yes, I realize I just compared myself to a female goddess. <laughs> In Ephesians 6.15, Paul exhorts his hearers to stand firm with our feet covered with not any sort of physical footgear, but rather with preparedness, a readiness to proclaim God's good news of peace. Now, before we look in detail at the good news shoes of peace, I want to comment briefly on the aim of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. I think this is important for us to keep in mind. Ephesians is Paul's magnum opus on the church as the eternal purpose plan of God the Father accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ and the impartation of the Holy Spirit. In the first three chapters of the letter, Paul seeks to explain the mystery of the church, that through the church, God is reconciling individuals to himself and to one another, reuniting a broken and fragmented humanity by means of his son, Jesus. In chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians, Paul delineates how we are to live as members of the church, united to one another, maintaining unity in the bond of peace. We are to walk, which is Paul's metaphor for lifestyle in Ephesians 4 and 5, in unity, in newness of life, not the way we used to live, in love, in light, and in wisdom. So when Paul gets to chapter 6 and verse 10, I don't think he's turning away from the topic of the worthy walk of the Christian life to address something wholly different. Instead, we might say he is recapitulating what he's already said in Ephesians 4 and 5, restating the same truths using the metaphor of armor and warfare. For example... When Paul tells us that we should buckle the belt of truth, we should recall his admonition to put off falsehood and speak truthfully to one another in chapter 4 and verses 15, 21, and 25. Likewise, the breastplate of righteousness should remind us of Paul's teaching about putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, chapter 4 and verse 25. And what Paul said about being children of light who bear the fruit of light in all that is good and right and true, chapter 5 and verse 9. In just a few moments, we will see how the concepts of gospel and peace in our verse this morning are a reworking of information that Paul has already presented in Ephesians. Now, don't misunderstand me here. We are absolutely engaged in a spiritual struggle against angelic forces who are in the spiritual realm. But the battlefront is in this physical realm, in the very tangible and mundane events of our everyday lives and in our attitudes and responses toward those everyday issues. Mark Driscoll 
former pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle and a, a big name in the emergent church movement of the early 2000s and then later the unrestless reformed movement of the later 2000s, was back in the limelight in recent weeks with his statements on social media. On his Instagram page, he talked about how certain modern critical theories are satanic, demonic, and evidence of spiritual warfare. And as a result of his short video, pushing a, a new book that he has authored, by the way, this meme started circulating on Twitter in ridicule of Driscoll's comments. I mentioned this because I think there are really two extremes, two dangerous extremes that Christians should avoid when it comes to our thinking on spiritual warfare. First of all, some want to see spiritual struggle behind every difficulty, every trial, every temptation, every opposition in the world today. But this is simply not the case. Sin and temptation to sin come from other sources than just the devil and his minions. Sin resides within our very beings, saturating our persons to the core, pervading every aspect of our humanity. We are tempted from within, not simply from without. But the pervasive nature of sin is not only on a micro level, tainting every aspect of our humanity. It also exists on a macro level, pervading our world, cultures, societies, institutions, and systems, so that sin has distorted everything that humans have touched. The very world in which we live is bent towards sin and bends us towards sin as well so that we might conform to its order. Not every temptation that you will face in this life is spiritual warfare. But it can be used by our enemy, our adversary, to his advantage. Neither is every negative experience of our lives the result of spiritual warfare either. There may be many causes, sometimes even my own stupidity. The other extreme that Christians fall into, however, and perhaps this is more evident in our secularized culture, is to completely ignore the reality of spiritual conflict. And I think why, that's in part why maybe this took off so much on social media. While not every negative experience in our lives is from the devil, many are, perhaps many more than we realize. I find at this stage in my life, the area in which I am most aware of the presence of spiritual conflict is in my home. And it is not through some kind of a sixth sense whereby I feel the presence of the demonic pervading the walls of my house. It is in the quiet temptations, the subtle temptations, to be lazy in my love for the Lord in front of, in front of my family to be selfish in my use of time instead of self-sacrificial, to elevate myself onto the throne of my heart rather than take up my cross, which means to take up the basin and the towel and humbly wash the feet of my family members. The famous Great Awakening preacher George Whitfield said about the devil, 
What he is most remarkable for is his subtlety. For not having power given him from above to take us by force, he is obliged to wait for opportunities to betray us and to catch us by guile. So our adversary is in the heavenly sphere of existence, but he engages with us here in this world, and we wage war to the extent to which we either resist temptation or conversely succumb to temptation to sin. And so all the spiritual armor of God is Paul's recapitulation of prior admonitions to walk in holiness before Christ our Lord. And so this brings us to verse 15, where we read in the ESV, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The Greek text uh, literally here says, and putting on the feet, or having put on the feet. We should think back to the command that Paul stated at the beginning of verse 14. He's explained that standing firm is what the Christian is called to do, and we do that by means of buckling the belt of truth, harnessing on the breastplate of righteousness, and now he adds that we should get our foot gear on. He's using the imagery of a Roman soldier, and uh, probably here the style of footwear that's in view is the Roman caliga. Bible commentator uh, Peter O'Brien says here, the Roman soldier frequently wore caliga, a half boot, which was not strictly a weapon, but part of his equipment that was used especially in long marches. Clinton Arnold adds that these leather boots might have had studs on the sole and heel to improve footing in battle. Shoes are vitally important for being able to perform a task well, whether in the military or as a civilian. I worked as a carpenter for a number of years, and I was always faced with the dilemma of whether to wear work boots, which were notoriously uncomfortable, but reliable for what I needed to do, or whether to wear sneakers, which had the benefit of comfort, but without the protection and durability of leather. I cannot tell you how many times I struggled to maintain solid footing while working on a roof with my tennis shoes on, or dropped heavy objects on the toes of my shoes in the same sneakers, or, on the other hand, came home from work with aching feet from the discomfort of steel-toed boots. The struggle was real. A number of years ago, we had a student here who grew up on the African continent and was not used to wearing shoes, so he would go around campus typically without shoes or even socks at times. This turned out to be unwise one Winterfest weekend when he spent so much time outside in the snow and ice barefoot that he suffered a mild frostbite on his feet. If only he had just put on shoes. Christians need to put on shoes also in our spiritual lives to give us a firm foundation on which to stand as we wage war, which is Paul's metaphor for living lives to the glory of Jesus Christ, walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Our feet are not to be fitted with leather sandal boots, however, and there were many sighs of relief out there. 
but with readiness or preparation. The term that's employed here is rendered readiness in the ESV and NIV, preparation by the New American Standard. It's used in a number of Old Testament texts to refer to the foundations of buildings. Ezra chapter 3 and verse 3, for example, says, they set the altar on its foundation. Same Greek term. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Zechariah 5, 11, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Paul probably has the idea of a strong and solid foundation that prepares the believer for spiritual contention with the armies of Satan. I grew up going to uh, Lake Geneva Youth Camp in southern Wisconsin, both attending the summer camps and then in my high school years serving on staff there. One of my favorite memories was playing tug-of-war with my team, a team of about 20, and we were holding on to a long, thick rope, and each team was on either side of a shallow pit that they filled up with this jello-like substance. The hardest, most frustrating part of the contest as we tried to pull the other team into the jello pit was not actually pulling the rope. If it had been dry ground, it would have been just fine. The hardest part was finding a spot to dig in your heels so that you actually had some place on which you could stand with all of the mud and the jello. And I don't know if you realize this, but when you hug mud and jello, it makes slime. And all the slime that was there, it was almost impossible to have any kind of sure footing. In our spiritual struggle, our footing must be secure, or we will not be able to stand firm to resist our enemy. We'll just slip and slide around, driven every direction by our foe. So we must put on these metaphorical shoes to be prepared to stand firm. So what are these spiritual Air Jordans that we must don? We should be grounded and prepared, Paul says, with the gospel of peace. The spiritual referent of the metaphor of physical footwear is the gospel of peace. It is the solid foundation on which we stand firm. The gospel of Jesus and the peace that he brings. Both gospel and peace are terms that Paul has employed previously in his letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 1 and verse 13, the gospel is referenced as the gospel of your salvation and is paralleled with the word of truth in that verse. In chapter 3 and verse 6, the gospel is the means by which the mystery of God, the church, the incorporation of Gentiles along with believing Jews into the body of Christ is enacted. Paul will refer to the gospel again as the mystery of God in verse 19 of chapter 6. And so in Ephesians, the gospel includes both individuals and corporate aspects. Individually, the good news is that Jesus, the true king of Israel, has come and died on the cross to save any who will believe and has risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Corporately, 
the good news is that this death and resurrection of Jesus has brought about the mystery of God, his eternal purpose for humanity, and has brought it into effect in the church with the creation of a new humanity. One new man, as he says in chapter 2 and verse 15. Those who believe in Jesus from among both Jews and Gentiles. This gospel that we are to be prepared with and in is the gospel of peace. While Paul does speak in many places outside of Ephesians as having peace with God through Jesus Christ individually, such as Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, which says there, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Although Paul speaks about individual peace as a result of the gospel, in Ephesians, the term consistently has more of a corporate connotation. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 14 and following for a moment. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Likewise, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3, Paul emphasizes the unity of believers that should result from peace. We could summarize Paul's teaching on peace as follows. The sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf satisfied the wrath of God against us resulting from our sin and reconciled us individually to the Father, establishing peace with God vertically. But our spiritual baptism into the body of Christ has destroyed horizontal barriers between human beings that were present in our fallen condition so that we can have peace with one another in the church. The gospel, therefore, creates peace in two directions, between God and humanity vertically and between humanity within itself, horizontally. Paul tells us, therefore, that we must be prepared for battle and the very shoes for our feet that give us our solid footing are none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. This good news of Christ's victory through suffering is the basis of all our activities as followers of Christ. Usually when we think of the gospel, we think of it as something that we as Christians impart to others. Many commentators have seen in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15 an allusion to this Old Testament verse. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who establishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The picture in this verse is of a herald 
who announces the good news to the people of God of freedom from captivity and the restoration of God's kingdom. As followers of Jesus today, we too are heralds. We proclaim the good news of Christ's vicarious death and glorious resurrection to others. And this is part of what I think Paul means in saying we are to be prepared with the good news of peace. But the gospel is just as needed for the church as it is for the unbelieving world. The gospel grounds our faith and reorients our thinking to remember what God the Father did on our behalf through his Son and how it is now applied to our hearts by his Spirit. There are a number of ways in which we can proclaim the gospel to one another in the body of Christ, but perhaps the most significant is that which was established by the Savior himself. I'm talking about the Lord's Supper. If evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel by the church to the world, the Lord's Supper is the proclamation of the gospel by the church to herself. So the Lord wants us to have our feet fitted with the combat readiness that results from the gospel's transforming work in our lives. The gospel tells us that Christ's death and resurrection have reconciled us to a holy God. The gospel also tells us that the work of Christ has established a new humanity and that there is now peace for all people available in this new creation. The, the gospel then gives us a firm footing to stand on as we live our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we treat the gospel as if it is the, um, the simplistic milk of the Christian faith. And it's good for us when we're baby believers, but that there are greater and deeper and more wonderful things for those who are more spiritually mature. I think it is true that there are basic elements of the gospel that even a child can understand to come to faith in Christ, yes. But that does not mean that the gospel is like baby food when it comes to doctrine. The gospel is both milk and meat. It is for newborn disciples and seasoned soldiers of the Christian faith. It is the firm foundation on which we stand. The gospel serves to us as spiritual PF flyers. Let's close our time in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, your truth. We thank you for the good news about Jesus Christ. We pray that as soldiers of the Lord Jesus, we would be prepared with the good news of peace, both peace with you that results from the reconciliation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and peace with others. Lord, we thank you that in the church we see people who, by this world's standards, should not be coming together should not be worshiping with one another, and we see them united through a common love for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We pray that the gospel would be as important in our lives for our everyday spiritual growth as it is for our sharing with the unbelieving, and that we would not neglect either aspects of that gospel proclamation, Father. We pray that in all of these things, we might be conscious of the spiritual struggle in which we find ourselves, and that in our day-by-day lives, as we go about the, the regular tasks, that we would not fall into the mindset that uh, these things are somewhere ethereal, otherworldly to us, but to realize that the way that we engage with these demonic forces and struggle against their uh, tactics is by living lives of holiness and righteousness here and now. We pray that the gospel would permeate our existence, that we would be known as gospel people, that we would not get over the gospel message, that we would never move beyond that simple truth. We thank you for our time together, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu partner.